Luke chapter 13 from verse 18 down to verse 21. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says. He, that is Jesus, said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we have turned now to your word that reveals to us what your kingdom is like. And we ask that you would help us to behold your glory as you reveal it through your kingdom. Lord, build us up in the most holy faith. Strengthen your saints. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. It was during the exile in Babylon, around 600 BC, when the people of Israel were deported out of their own land and subjected to another foreign kingdom, it was then that God spoke through the mouth of his prophet Daniel. In the darkest hours of Israel's history, Judah to be specific, when it was all but certain that they had, by their disobedience, irreversibly forfeited the keys to their kingdom, God announced a word of hope to his people by way of vision. And this vision, which was shown in a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in Daniel chapter 2, in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a massive, frightening image of four parts of gold, silver, bronze, and lastly, iron mixed with clay. And as Daniel prophetically interpreted for him, the image represented the four major kingdoms of earth that would arise through the course of ensuing history. But the dream ended not like that, but with a little stone untouched by human hands, which struck this monstrous, terrifying image, and the whole thing came crashing down, withering and vanishing into the wind. And as to the meaning of this, Daniel explained in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And this kingdom, as signified by the stone, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And this kingdom, of which the prophet Daniel prophesied, is the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Peter preached before the Jewish rulers in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, he said, Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone. He is the very cornerstone upon which the kingdom of God is built. And that kingdom, friends, is, is his church, the body of Christ, over which Christ himself is the head and ruler. Hence, Peter would later write, to the church in his first letter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, that you, he's speaking, writing to believers, to Christians, you are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, built upon Christ, who is 
the cornerstone. You see, the church is the everlasting kingdom of God, which the risen Christ inaugurated by his resurrection. And this kingdom shatters in pieces all the kingdoms of the world. No gates of hell shall prevail against it, Jesus said of his church. And so there's a sense in which we're already living in the age of Jesus' reign over the world, over against every kingdom of earth. By faith, we are members of a heavenly, triumphant kingdom that is presently, as I speak, advancing and extending its dominion throughout the whole world. But here's the thing. Sometimes, actually many times, it really doesn't seem like it's true, does it? All of this sounds more theoretical than actual. Because you look around and it sure looks like that the world is becoming more ungodly as time goes on. As though it's the reign of darkness that is advancing and extending its influence. I mean, just look at the Bay Area. For those of you who have lived here for more than a decade, you probably notice how much has changed. And not for the better, but for the worse. I mean, just within the last 10 years in this area, there's been a noticeable spike of increasing lawlessness and violence and crime. The the common grace of God we enjoyed in a universal sense of basic morality throughout the general populace. I mean, it seems like these days, simple human decency and conscience is falling apart at the seams. Look, you, you used to be able to keep your front door unlocked and not worry. But now, you can't even keep your own car parked outside your own driveway in peace lest somebody steal your catalytic converter. Good luck to those of you who own a Prius. I mean, those Prius cats be a hot commodity. That's why I got rid of my uh, Prius. I sold it. Ain't nobody stealing my Prius cat, so I just got rid of it. Anyway. But look, I mean, you, you, you look at the state of our governments, our schools, businesses, I mean, everything. Yay, even churches. And it seems that godless ideology has overtaken them all. And so evangelism is more difficult than ever because people are so steeped into this postmodern humanistic paganism that they can't even process, they can't even fathom why anyone should believe anything anymore, let alone bow the knee uh, to a God that they don't believe exists. I mean, let's be real. In, in, In just the last 10 years, it does not look like God's kingdom has been succeeding, right? It doesn't look like his reign and rule has been progressing in the world, but rather, if anything, regressing. Now, church, we live in some dark times. And it's easy to get discouraged and wonder if the proclamations of Scripture are indeed true. But if we are discouraged, it's only because we have misplaced expectations about the nature of God's kingdom. What it is like, how it works, how it grows, and how it advances. Remember, Jesus said in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is so unlike the kingdoms of earth because it triumphs 
and it conquers in the most holy ways, in ways that are beyond human wisdom and expectation. And so we need to understand that while to the human eye, it may seem like the reign of Christ is being obstructed by the reign of evil, all the while, God, who sits on the throne of heaven, he sees it all, and as Psalm 2 says, he laughs. He laughs. No matter how things may seem to the human eye, against all odds and despite all opposition, God's kingdom is advancing exactly according to his will. His kingdom will never pass away. To the very contrary, its growth and success is a done deal. It is guaranteed and certain no matter what opposition or adversary it faces. In fact, this was precisely the concern that prompted Jesus to tell these two parables about God's kingdom. Notice how verse 18 begins with, Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And as I often say, whenever we see the word therefore in the Bible, it is an indication that this passage is directly connected to the passage that came just before it, which in this case is what we saw last Sunday uh, in verse 10 down to verse 17 of Jesus healing this disabled woman on the Sabbath. And while it was a glorious revelation of the gospel, as we beheld Jesus delivering a woman from her own crushing weight that she had no strength to lift herself, uh, it was a physical sign of the spiritual condition of man and his crushing weight of sin. Remember, as amazing as that account was, it ended on a very sour note of hard-hearted unbelief from the ruler of the synagogue. So dark and callous was this man's heart that despite seeing this incredible supernatural healing from Jesus, who had just demonstrated his undeniable divine power and authority for the umpteenth time, the synagogue ruler could only think to rebuke Jesus for doing a work, quote-unquote, on the Sabbath, which of course we saw last week, was a horrible distortion and misrepresentation of the original Sabbath command. And in the face of such hostile rejection of Jesus, perhaps some of his disciples who were there with him might have been discouraged, even feeling hopeless as they witnessed time and time again such hard-hearted unbelief. And maybe they said something like, hey, Jesus, I don't know if this whole bringing the kingdom thing is going that well. I mean, some of the most important people of Israel, the spiritual leaders, they're not receptive at all to your message. How many times have you taught in the synagogue and done amazing things and they're still not buying it? Uh, Are we doing something wrong? Should we change our ministry strategy? Should we hire a consultant? And it's in response to the sentiment of discouragement that Jesus therefore says, hey guys, let me tell you what God's kingdom is actually like. We need to begin here because this is the heart of the issue of you feeling disheartened and second-guessing the power and efficacy of the gospel in the face of an unbelieving world. And so let me describe it for you like this. What shall I compare it to? What analogy should I use to clarify what the kingdom of God is like? And it's like this. Verse 19, a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. 
The mustard seed, as you may have heard before, is one of the smallest kinds of seed. It's almost laughably tiny and minuscule in size. It's smaller than a grain of rice. And if you put it on the palm of your hand, just one little seed, it could be mistaken for a speck of dust. But in spite of its measly first impression, that same seed eventually grows to become this enormous tree, often more than 20 feet tall, with the wide crown that provides ample lodging for many, many birds of the air to nest and build their homes. And this is what God's kingdom is like. It appears at first too small, too insignificant, overpowered by anything before it, to make any dent whatsoever in the world. And especially today, don't we feel intimidated sometimes by how intolerant the world has become to biblical truth? That people are not receptive to the idea that they are guilty, hopeless sinners. And their only hope is surrendering themselves to Christ and beginning a whole new life in Him. That's offensive. It it grinds against fallen human nature. And it's only exacerbated by, again, this postmodern humanism that spews from every faucet of information, from, from every school and media outlet and government form of entertainment, what have you. But to this, Jesus says, don't be dismayed or even fooled by the littleness of the gospel's reception, how unreceptive people are. And don't be intimidated by the largeness of opposition. My kingdom purpose is moving along just fine, all according to plan. It is the eternal, immutable decree of God, more certain than even the laws of nature, that this little mustard seed of the kingdom will flourish and extend itself to the ends of the earth, even against all odds. How? Because the way that the kingdom of God advances is not how the kingdoms of earth advance and extend their reign. Every earthly kingdom grows and spreads its dominion by the sheer magnitude of their human power and threat. I mean, this is global politics in a nutshell, isn't it? Every nation is in a race to the top of the totem pole by way of cutting-edge technology, economic leverage, storehouse of natural resources, and not least, military power. At the end of the day, the nation that comes out on top is the one who's got the biggest guns, the most money, the most resources, and very understated, who controls the narrative and the faucet of information by which they control the thinking of the masses. Psychological warfare. And all these various components serve to put on an exhibition of a kingdom's show of force to demonstrate that they can and will overpower any nation or individual that resists and will subjugate them by any means necessary. So resistance is futile. That's how the kingdoms of earth advance. But how does God's kingdom advance and spread? Zechariah 4.6 Not by human might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, what does that mean? It means that the power of God's kingdom is exercised, not in an external conquering, but an internal conquering. Anyone can do the external takeover. 
with enough force and resources. I mean, that's, that's the history of human civilization. Nations conquering nations. One world empire becomes the king of the hill until eventually another empire rises and, and kicks them off the hill, rinse and repeats. But if you think about it, every time this happens, the conquered nation and her citizens do not suddenly have a change of heart and new affections and allegiance for the foreign nation that has overtaken them. It's usually the opposite. It breeds greater enmity and hostility within the people. Look, when the Germans took over Poland in 1939, the Polish people didn't suddenly start cheering and singing the German national anthem. It's just not what happens. And in this way, we can see that even the most powerful conquest of the mightiest kingdoms of earth, it is all but a show. It is but external modification. It is merely changing the colors of a flag. But the power of God's kingdom, it reaches into the soul of man, into his inner heart, into his spirit, and gives birth to new affections and holy allegiance to the king who has ransomed them out of the domain of darkness and transferred them into His gracious and beloved kingdom. As God promised through the prophet Jeremiah, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And again, He said through Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within them and I will incline them from within, to walk in my ways. This is the nature of God's kingdom, how it works, how it spreads. It is an internal conquest. And that's what the second parable is illustrating. Verse 20, again, he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Throughout the Bible, we we usually see leaven used to illustrate the nature and spread of sin. But as in the case here, not always. Context tells you what the illustration is illustrating, what the metaphor is signifying. And obviously here, Jesus is using leaven or yeast to describe the characteristics of his kingdom because yeast spreads quietly, unknowingly, unannounced, but it does spread and it overtakes the whole environment with the influence of of its properties. And so it is with the kingdom of God. In fact, it's probably intentional that Jesus uses here that same metaphor of leaven, which usually depicts how sin uh, spreads, in order to describe how God's kingdom spreads because it is a direct juxtaposition of the reign of sin and the reign of God and holiness. You see, we have to understand That God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, is not merely a place. It is not a geographical territory. But whenever you see the word kingdom in the Bible, it first and foremost means reign. Not R-A-I-N, the reign that's out there, but R-E-I-G-N, reign, dominion. The kingdom of God is the rule of God the reigning authority of God. 
And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is like leaven, he's talking about how God's governing rule spreads and overtakes the world, not by external force or conspicuous means, but by the very quiet means of operating from within the depths of man's heart, which is, he regenerates by the power of his spirit. And again, that's why in the first parable, Jesus described the kingdom as a seed, just as we see in the parable of the sower and in a number of other New Testament passages, the seed represents the word of God, disseminated to the world by way of preaching and evangelism. And when God, when he implants that seed into the hearts of sinners and gives it growth, it takes root from deep within down to man's very nature. And just like leaven, it overtakes that once hostile, rebellious environment of the spiritually dead heart and gives rise to new spiritual life in Christ. You see, only the kingdom of God is able to truly conquer the world from inside out because he can reach the inner man. His power is able to override the rebellion of the heart. This is how God's kingdom grows. It's not very impressive by human metric or appearance. There are no tanks or artillery involved. And no positions of power or prestige within government necessarily. No marketing appeal. And you can't even see if or how the reign of God is spreading. It's not immediately visible how God is at work to advance his kingdom because the arena of the battle is within the secrecy of the hidden heart. But this is what matters. This is the real battle because this is the real problem of the world. The problem of sin, the problem of man's heart, the problem of evil originates from the problem of man's sinful heart, evil heart. This is true triumph and victory, you see, that God has the power to bring rebellious sinners happily, joyfully, and willingly to their knees simply by the propagation of His Word. And this is why we should never be discouraged when we look at the state of the world and evangelism looks hopeless and unbelief seems to dominate the air. Now that, that's just the reality of man's fallen heart. That was true of all of you and me. That has never thwarted, nor even slowed down for a second, the purposes of God's kingdom. You know, one of the greatest hindrances of evangelism is not only a lack of courage, although that's a big part, but it's a lack of confidence. It is very easy for us in these days to have a defeatist attitude to be utterly deflated because the world seems so lost that when we think of the prospect of evangelism, we are tempted to think, what's the use anyway? And we'll hear something to snap us out of it. Jesus gives us the guarantee of the triumph of his kingdom. God said, my word that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty, Isaiah 55, 11, but it shall accomplish all that I have purposed for it to do. It will succeed. 
And this certainty is meant to not make us lazy and idle, but to invigorate us and to infuse us with fervor and passion and to go and win souls to Christ, to go to the highways and the byways and to call sinners to be born again by faith in Jesus Christ and enter the kingdom of God. And look at how vividly Jesus portrays this victory against all odds. He says, God's kingdom is like leaven. There's a little bit of yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. You know how many three measures is, according to the language here? That's about 100 pounds of dough once it's been mixed with water. 100 pounds, that's a huge batch. You can start a bakery. But introduce just a little bit of leaven, and it is potent enough to overtake the whole thing. The essential question for us as believers is this. Do you honestly believe that the gospel is the very power of God unto salvation for anyone and everyone who believes? That the gospel intrinsically has the power to melt hearts of stone? Look, I get it. Okay? It's distressing and maddening seeing where our world is right now, where it's headed, and all the wicked ideology spread throughout our culture and it's good and helpful to discuss it together as brothers and sisters but at some point we need to stop wasting time bemoaning the state of this world and we need to go do something about it with what god has entrusted to us and charged to us we need to go and scatter the seed of the gospel. We need to go and knead the leaven of Christ into a world that has been overtaken by the leaven of sin and darkness. Again, it might, may not be so glamorous, but this is where we need to see through the eyes of faith that the kingdom of God is so unlike the kingdoms of the world. How it grows, how it advances, how it spreads, it may not be impressive to the human eye, and it may seem overwhelming. And it may not come with parade and fireworks. And it may be utterly offensive and foolish to the world. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise beloved. And nothing can thwart the spread of God's kingdom. Every force of darkness is powerless against it. Because this is God's promise. And this is God's will. In fact, in the first parable, when Jesus describes how the mustard seed grows and becomes a tree and the birds come and make nests, he, he's not just coming up with this nice, random, charming illustration like one of those classic Disney movies where the princess is singing and the birds are chirping. I mean, the, he's getting this from somewhere. This is coming from Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 to 24, where God had revealed during the Babylonian exile that he had not abandoned his kingdom his people, but this was the promise that he uttered in Ezekiel 17. He says, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. 
And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and I make dry and I make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord. This is divine promise. His kingdom will succeed and spread to the ends of the earth. Just as Daniel prophesied, this kingdom will break into pieces every opposition and obstacle. Now, perhaps you're wondering, if God's kingdom is triumphing and will triumph over everything and everyone in the end, what's the end product going to look like? I mean, Jesus says by this parable that the kingdom of God is like leaven and it will result in all Everything being leavened. Does this mean that the whole world at some point in history will one day effectively become Christianized? And that we should expect the totality of human civilization to come under, quote unquote, Christian influence. Now, some believe this uh, based on this parable, among other select passages. I don't think it's heretical, but I respectfully disagree. And I'll explain why. Now, this is a huge topic of debate and discussion. Obviously, I don't have time to get into every point of issue. But at least within the scope of everything we've been talking about, let me just make the simple point. Whenever you see the word all in the Bible, it doesn't always, in fact, rarely doesn't mean all without exception as an absolutely everyone, everything, everywhere. Absolutely. Because the word all, always, has a context. And the question, when you come across the word all, you have to ask every time, all of what? For instance, if I say to you, hey, good morning, everyone. How are you all doing? Hey, I use the word all. It's a term that communicates universality. But obviously, when I ask that question, I am not asking that question to all the world, everyone alive on planet Earth right now. By situational context, clearly you understand that what I'm saying is, how are you all who are in this room right now, looking at me, hearing me speak, how are all of you, all of my listeners doing? You see, the word all always has a particular context and scope. You can't just assume that it's always talking about everyone in the world without exception. And so then, what is the scope in view here? All of what will be leavened? It's all of God's people. All of the remnant. Now, how do we know this? Well, again, there's so much I can talk about, but to keep it concise, you can turn to Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus gives uh, this same set of parables. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 31 and uh, down to verse 33. There you see the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. So a parallel account to what we see in Luke. But what Matthew also includes that Luke just doesn't is that just before that, in the same context, Jesus gave another parable. And so in describing the kingdom, Matthew records Jesus giving three parables of the same discourse. Okay, whereas Luke just... Gave two. And that parable comes before in verse 24 
of Matthew chapter 13. Three parables to describe the kingdom, and this one, the parable of the weeds, is the first of the three. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared, again, talking the same way. What is it like? It can be compared to this. That a man sowed good seed in his field. Again, it sounds just like how the mustard seed parable begins. Verse 25, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among, along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The time of the great harvest, which is the end of human history, as Jesus explains explicitly uh, when he gives an explanation of the parable of the weeds in verse 36 down to verse 43. The time of the great harvest is the end of human history. And clearly we see here that it will not end with a nice Christianized world. There will be a mixture of the weeds and the wheat. The sheep and the goats. The saved and the unsaved. Which means it may not be very easy for us. In fact, the number of weeds may largely outnumber the number of uh, good seed. We, we, we're not promised the luxury of a moral and spiritual utopia in this life. We're guaranteed suffering. All who desire to live a godly life will suffer, 2 Timothy 3.12. The pattern of God's redeeming work from the Old Testament was always to save a remnant of his people. God's true people at basically any point in history has always been a very small number, a minority And you'll see that very clearly in the next passage, as Jesus talks about, that the way is very narrow. Few will find it. God saves a remnant. God owes no one anything. God is not obligated to save anybody. But by nothing but his grace, he saves some, though he should save none. And that same pattern will continue for the rest of redemptive history until the end. And so the fact that there remains many who reject and oppose the kingdom of God, we must understand none of that is a threat to his kingdom purpose. Because we're headed toward an eternal harvest, which will be a day of great separation, a great sifting. You'll either be gathered into the presence of Christ or you will be gathered to be bound as bundles and carried away from Christ to be burned. And that will be the end, the final punctuation of God's kingdom program, exactly according to plan, regardless of how many people reject the gospel. Look, if you're here this morning and you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ by faith, you need to understand that first of all, this harvest day is coming. And you right now, you are unprepared for it. And you will be bundled up to be burned. And secondly, you need to understand, friend, 
that God's kingdom will grow and progress and flourish with or without you. Jesus is not begging for your participation because he needs you. Make no mistake, your rejection of the gospel is no impedance to Jesus' reign and the advancement of the gospel. But even so, see here then how gracious he is with what love he calls to you genuinely to come and enter his kingdom by faith that you might not perish, but that you may have life in his name. He calls you to turn from your sin and to turn to him who suffered and died on the cross for the sins of all his people. His death is sufficient to atone for all your sins. This is good news for you. This seed of the gospel, he is sowing into your heart right now. And as you are listening, as, as you are receiving it, do not harden the soil of your heart. Do not resist the Holy Spirit testifying in your conscience of the truth of this gospel and the urgency of repentance. For your sake, for your welfare, for your blessing, confess your sin now and turn to Jesus while you can and come find refuge in Him as King and Lord and Savior. And church, this whole discussion about how history will end with this harvest of great separation, the point of all of this is to remind us that gospel success does not correlate to the human metric of numbers, percentages, and ratios. We can't measure the triumph of God's kingdom by how much Christianity dominates the culture. That's frankly, a very simplistic way of defining kingdom success. Just as the servants of the master asked in that parable of the weeds, but master, didn't you sow good seed? If that's the case, why are there weeds? There shouldn't be any. Come harvest time, the seed was good. I I would expect a flawless harvest with no more weeds. But the master says, no, 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 no. You know, it's more complex than that. God's will and sovereign purpose is far deeper than something so Frankly, simplistic and formulaic. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. But look, all of this should serve as an encouragement to us that because the success of the gospel and the triumph of God's kingdom is not contingent on having a majority foothold of Christian influence in the world. By faith, we can trust that even when it appears that the powers of darkness are winning and that godlessness is reigning over the land, all the while, God is saving every one of His sheep and not a single one that has been given into the hand of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, will be lost. God is saving every one of His remnant, not by power, nor by might, but by His Spirit. He is implanting the seed of the gospel into the inner depths of man's heart, and He will give it growth. 
And He is establishing His rule and law within them. No matter what's going on, Christ is still on the throne, reigning triumphantly as ever. And even if the world should plunge into even greater darkness than it already has, the light of the true gospel will only shine more brightly than ever. And so church, let us be heralds of the gospel. Let us be those who scatter the holy seed wherever we go. And let this be our confidence and strength that the kingdom of God shall never pass away and no gates of hell will prevail against his church and that Jesus is the king of kings and he will reign forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are the king of kings. You are the ancient of days. And we thank you that to a weary people, to an exasperated people like us, as we often grow faint-hearted and discouraged, you remind us through your word of your absolute sovereignty. And what a comfort it is that we belong to you, that we are members of your kingdom, and that we have been made children of the most high king of heaven. And we thank you that you sent your son for us to bring this about. And we thank you that you've given to us, your church, this precious sacrament of the Lord's Supper by which you visibly and tangibly remind us of this truth as we partake of the elements which we ask for you to set apart by your spirit to minister to our souls. But as we partake in it, what we are doing is we are gathering around the table of the King. Oh Lord, would you comfort us and would you strengthen us? Would you feed our souls by it and help us to receive it by faith? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.